0: Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Today is a bonus episode from another podcast. I was a guest on the podcast on episode 23 of Fish Untamed. I joined Katie on the podcast, it's traditionally a fishing podcast, but I wanted to tell people about more about invasive species of the aquarium world and educate some of her fishing listeners. Certainly check it out, fishuntamed.com. You can also find them on Spotify, give them a like and subscribe. Guys, also consider going to our Patreon page at Guys on Patreon. Donate. You can listen to some of these episodes. Not this one, but our original content unfiltered. Let's kick that podcast.
1: To the Fish Untamed podcast, where we talk all things fishing, conservation, and the outdoors. Today on the show, I'm talking to Robs Olson, host of the Aquarium Guys podcast. All right, folks, welcome to episode number 23 of the Fish Untamed podcast. Today, I had a really interesting conversation with Robs Olsen from the Aquarium Guys podcast, which seemed like an unlikely match at first, um, but I was talking to Robs, and uh, he mentioned that he was looking to have someone come on his show to do kind of an intro to fly fishing um, episode as sort of an out-of-the-box series. So, I went on the Aquarium Guys, which if you haven't listened to it, go ahead and just search the Aquarium Guys, and it should pop right up. Um But then we talked about maybe having him as a guest on Fish Untamed. And while I'm not as interested in the aquarium side of things, Rob's mentioned that being a part of that world, he has quite a bit of experience um, learning about and dealing with invasive species. A lot of the invasive species we're dealing with in the U.S. started because someone dumped their tank of fish into their local waterway when they were, you know, over having their pets. And my impression up until this conversation was that most of these invasive species were detrimental because they directly competed with native fish in the area. And while that is an issue, um, one of the big things I learned in this conversation is about all the other ways that these invasive species can have an impact. Um, It goes way beyond just the direct competition or predation uh, between the invasive species and the native ones but i really enjoyed this talk super packed with information um, and just very interesting so without further ado here is my chat with robs olson all right awesome um i usually start by asking people about their fishing background since that's you know the theme of the podcast so if if you'd like to talk about your fishing background Absolutely. you're more than welcome to also maybe just a little background on the whole aquarium side, because that, as much as I was an out of the box episode on your show, this is kind of an out of the box episode, a bit for mine, talking to the aquarium guys. So um, maybe a little background on
0: both. Sounds great. Well, again, I'm Rob Zolson. Uh, Nice to meet everybody on the the podcast. Thanks for having me again, Katie. Uh, I am part of the Aquarium Guys podcast, and I'm here to talk to you about uh, different invasive species and maybe learning a little bit about my world in aquariums. To dive in, uh, you gave me a list of details to go over. So again, I'm from central northern Minnesota, and my fishing experiences completely come from around the area. I live in the epicenter, uh, see, Perm, Minnesota, uh, 30 miles in one direction. That whole stretch is mile per square mile, the most densely populated lakes in the entire world. If you look in the map, there's more blue than green. You drive a mile, you're seeing seven lakes. It's incredible. Some of these lakes don't even have names. There are so many. They always say that Minnesota is the uh, land of 18, uh, 18 th- Excuse me, ten thousand lakes. It's actually eighteen thousand plus. That,
1: that's I. I am so jealous of that. Like I've looked at maps of Minnesota and like parts of Canada that are the, that are the same way, and it's just like a sea of blue, and it's it just looks like a like a boater's paradise where you could just. You could get around via boat, better than better than car probably.
0: So some of the places that they have around here, they actually have restaurants and other businesses on the lake where you can just fish or have your house on the lake. You drive a couple of miles down the lake, and you're at you know like a pizza Mexican joint, and you park your boat on a giant uh, you know business dock. It's they even like do uh, delivery right to your boat. There's a lot. Oh, that's of awesome. Like that. So yeah. <laughs> It's absolutely, as you described, the only thing that I think we uh, could use in Minnesota is airboats. That way we can actually cross across, but that's more of a Florida thing.
1: Yeah. Is that just because it's kind of shallow? Like, could you do that if it's just, like, shallow between lakes? Or is there not that kind of uh, setup there where it's – is it more deep lakes with land in between?
0: It's a lot of what they call kettle lakes. Okay. So a lot of lakes they have in here – And again, we have every type of lake. The kettle lakes look just like a perfect bowl cut out of the ground. They'll go 30, 35 feet and some of them are not spring-fed, so they're just rain-entered. They're not mm-hmm. even river-connected, so there's not a lot of marshlands between a lot of the lakes, like you'd assume. Okay. If you look at the Everglades, you'll see the kind of the same amount of blue on the map, but it's all kind of connected and it's super marsh. That's why yeah, the okay. airboat is because they have to use an airboat to traverse because airboats are in- inherently more expensive. Mm-hmm. So these you'd have to travel, you know, a farmer's field between lakes. It's just not cohesive to have an airboat.
1: So I assume that's just using the, the standard like canoe portage, you know, between, between bodies of water?
0: 100%. Okay. 100%. And that's what the, you know, the boundary water natural area. I think you had an expert on your podcast talk about his love and passion of the boundary waters and he was dead on that, that whole portage. There's no motorized vehicles back there mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of sections and yeah, there's, there's whole masses of land where you just have to buck up and carry your canoe.
1: So is that where you got your fishing start in that area?
0: Not in the Boundary Waters. Again, okay. I'm closer to uh, Fargo. If you look up uh, Perm, Minnesota, where you kind of north-central. And, yeah, ours is right between all the other, you know, houses and homes. It's not protected wilderness. There are state forests in the area. But, again, it's uh, more accessible with four-wheelers and trucks and vehicles. And almost every lake has some sort of public access. But uh, the lake I lived on was very small. It was... It could be recognized as a pond, but it was seventy feet deep, and it had its own uh, seven springs that we counted from year to year. Some springs would plug, some springs would appear, but it was uh, very interesting for us. But no, no portages by where we're at. That's only like an up north in the dense, uh, dense wilderness boundary water area.
1: You know, that's funny you say that because I've gotten in this debate with people before. Um, the difference between a pond and a lake, I think, varies based on where you are in the country. Like where I grew up, a pond was, you know, it could be pretty big and still be a pond. Um, You had to get to the point where you really need a boat to cross it, you know, to call it a lake. And since I've moved out to Colorado, people start calling like the tiniest things lakes. Like there are things that you could swim across in 30 seconds that they're calling lakes. And uh, I feel like that's just such a difference around the country with what what counts as a lake and what doesn't.
0: And in Minnesota, we've always had some sort of misconception of calling lakes. Lakes have fish. That's how you describe a lake. If it has fish, it's a lake. Well, that's not necessarily true because you go down south and they have fishing ponds that are covered in fish. Mm -hmm. The difference is ours, when they freeze, can it hold oxygen and and keep fish alive? Because, you know, I I just had on my podcast, uh, the pond guy, and he gave us instructions on how lakes and ponds freeze. And it's not about them freezing solid. It's about them freezing and not having enough space to have oxygen. So six feet is generally a rule of thumb if it can hold a fish in Minnesota.
1: Oh, okay. I didn't. Be- I didn't realize that. I always thought it was freezing solid too.
0: Yeah, it's got to be six feet, and even then, some ten-foot lakes have oxygen issues. So it, it varies. And the Minnesota DNR has the probably the nation's largest fisheries in Minnesota. We have multiple fisheries across the country, and you can go to our podcast AquariumGuysPodcast.com, and there's uh, we have Minnesota DNR on our show, and we have one that specializes in walleye uh, farming. So they they literally do Walmart a walleye walmart walleye fisheries and they have to check these lakes to make sure that they're not going to freeze out that they're stocking for sport fishing and uh, do a lot of research but no i i still don't know a complete accurate definition of a lake versus pond if someone could tell me great but uh, that's always been a misconception it has fish it's a lake but
1: huh so so is uh like a farm pond a thing where you are or would that be like a farm lake if it's got it's got like bass and bluegill in it
0: you hear a bunch of people in in the south The South versus us, how they treat things are so different. They do ponds for different reasons. They either do it for their cattle. They do it to have water access uh, close by their farmer's fields. They do it because they have a hobby thing where they dig a tractor and throw bass and sunfish, uh, as you say, bluegills in there. Um, That is so foreign to us because the Minnesota DNR is so protective up here of our natural resources that legalities are thickened through. Huh. So if you wanted to dig yourself a pond, there's nothing stopping you. You as a farmer, as long as you're not within a natural lake, there's lake variances, of course, within like 100 yards of the lake. You're allowed to dig whatever you want. So you can make yourself a pond, but putting native Minnesota fish into that pond, it, you have to have licenses for. You just really that free, free roam. No one can just build a fishing pond like you would in the south. Like someone finds a pond, they throw bass in there on their own. Super illegal will get your fishing licenses revoked in some situations.
1: That is crazy. I would I would have never even thought to, I mean, I, I would look up the legality if I were trying to, you know, put a pond at my house, make sure that, you know, I, I'm, you know, whatever, permitted or zoned or whatever for that. But I would have never thought to look up whether I can put fish in my own pond. I would assume that it's my pond I can put whatever fish I want in there. I, I know that you're not allowed to put fish in, you know, public waterways like that. You can't just dump your fish in there. But and that's, yeah, you that's can't put of... up
0: your own pond, nothing. That's that's creating a separate resource that may create a disease that may get into another lake or stream. They're, wow. they're very, very protective of invasive species and, and diseases bar none. So to go even further into that, to even have a fish brought in, say you want to put one in an aquarium, that's definitely illegal in minnesota as well you have to have certain licenses to keep fish they have to be under the bars of live well status you can only keep them for so long in an enclosure and if you do again you still have to have certain baiting licenses or farming licenses now there's certain people in minnesota that have um private walleye farms and these things are you know made for food you'll see walleye fillets in stores they have special licenses with the dnr they have to submit the dnr um, veterinarian inspections to see the health of the fish. It's very much controlled because we're the only state that has this many lakes and where I'm at, the only place in the world that will have that many lakes. They're very protective.
1: You know, that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's one thing like here in Colorado, most of our, you know, excluding the, the few handful of big rivers we've got and the Alpine lakes, which are pretty, you know, they're pretty isolated from everything else. Um, everything else is essentially reservoirs like we don't have a lot of just natural lakes around uh, if you want to fish a big lake you're going to a reservoir and if you're not fishing a big lake you're fishing something that you hiked in a couple of miles to get to and it's way up at you know ten thousand feet not a huge risk of someone's you know aquarium spilling out into that but yeah it's, it's a completely different world you know where you are where everything is water
0: yeah every everywhere you go there's water everybody has some sort of a lake home or cabin they go to or at least if they're in the cities they drive up to their lake home and cabin a different experience but my fishing you asked before about my fishing background and again my fishing background's up here so we live and breathe off of the walleye everybody loves fall uh, fishing for walleye that is the the trophy fish they have state limits then they have individual lake limits and they that's the most farmed fish for the fisheries up here is walleye but you know i've i fished everything that i can in minnesota i fished uh, a lot of northern. I love largemouth bass fishing. It's probably my favorite fishing using a popper, hitting uh, hitting them crisp in the morning on the surface. Pan fishing. We have amazingly huge crappie, probably the biggest crappie I've ever seen. Um, the normal pan fish, perch, sunfish. Uh, you know, things that we don't have a lot of is um, we have some gar. You know, like uh, small nose uh, gar. Gar. We do not have alligator gar stuff like that. I think the biggest fish that we have in the uh, area would be a muskellunge. We call them muskies mm-hmm. and those are so much fun.
1: Yeah. So tell, tell me about, it sounds like you've caught them before. So tell me a little bit about the muskie fishing up there.
0: The only way I can describe it, it's freshwater barracuda. They're absolutely massive. They keep them, uh, they introduce them because they used to be in many of the Minnesota lakes and streams in the 18 late 1800s. And, a lot of people intentionally fished them out because they thought they were garbage fish. and it's not necessarily garbage fish, but they that they would you know destroy their precious walleye or or their panfish they're trying to do. So there's been dNr won't admit this but there has been reintroduction of muskellunge to a lot of different lakes and to be honest it has not affected populations whatsoever that's completely false it's just part of the food chain there's no way a muskellunge could wipe out anything in a lake however they're very big they're very aggressive you know 56 uh, 60 inches is not uh, out of question
1: it's funny that well not funny i mean not, the wipe, the wiping out of a of a species isn't funny but like it the thought of out like overfishing by hand muskies. It's just kind of funny to me because you know, it's like the fish of 10,000 casts and the thought of people out, out there, it's not like you're fishing for largemouths that'll, you know, kind of eat whatever or or sunfish that, you know, you can literally throw a bare hook out at times and get them to attack it. Um, it's so hard to even catch a muskie that the thought of people wiping them out essentially just with, with standard gear is kind of, kind of comical.
0: Oh, and you got to remember that when they wipe out, they're talking about having a family reunion and filling a small lake that may be 10 square, uh, that's an exaggeration, they'll say 30, 40 square acres and just filling it with boats. And this is, is how some areas used to do. And then it's not like they're intentionally doing it, but that's how family reunions are done on a lot of small lakes is they'll go fishing. Like the whole family does, they'll mm-hmm. have eight boats out. It'll be incredible. And they'll spend you know a week's vacation fishing the same lake and that's why the fisheries are so uh, important. It's not that the fish can't survive on their own. It's just that some of these lakes are more popular than others and uh-huh. they can get completely wiped out.
1: So when you said, I, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but when, when you say that like some lakes are more popular than others, how does one even choose a lake when there are 18,000 lakes in the state? Like w- what makes some lakes popular and some lakes not?
0: Public access versus private. a lot of these lakes because the DNR can only afford to put in so many public accesses to these lakes so they'll pick and choose based on lake size what type of fish are there and the population by them so if you can get a boat in there probably going to be more popular than something you can't get a boat in and you have to just like you know grab a canoe and throw it over a ditch
1: okay fair enough. that's
0: number one number two is where's the tourist area If there's a tourist attraction they're going to go to the easiest public access lake um there's a city uh and now we're out from Fargo called Detroit Lakes, and there's the Detroit Lake on it. They stock that lake. It is extremely popular. It has thousands of people that visit it every year for their, their beaches, and the cities right on the lake. So location, and uh, a lot of times, where the people are getting their secrets. Where were they raised? Oh, I've always fished on these lakes. I'm never going to leave. Mm-hmm. So,
1: So basically, if it's in a... A heavily touristed area and it's got a you know a boat ramp or something that's just like people are gonna flock there because it's it's like the most convenient place for them to go versus Absolutely. somewhere in the middle of nowhere okay that makes in, sense
0: in Minnesota it really abides by no one can own water so this okay. goes from duck hunting, any type of uh, you know fly fishing anything you're looking for, no one owns water. so if you own land all the way around a lake as long as it's within I think it's a uh, hundred feet, you have variants to cross someone's private property to get to that lake
1: i am so jealous of that because we have terrible stream access laws in colorado uh you can't so i know like montana's got good ones where you know you've got up to the high water mark on a river is public um and here it's like the private landowner owns up to the halfway point in that river so they own river right they've got the whole river right bank the whole way into the riverbed halfway through the stream um, and if someone else owns the other half or if they own the other half, you can't go there. You can't touch bottom. You can float over it. But if you even if your boat even bumps a rock or if you drop anchor, you are trespassing. Oh, and yeah. For a state that, you know, makes so much money off of outdoor recreation. I cannot I can't fathom why our stream access law is so restrictive like that. But it is. And I'm I'm really jealous of the states that have a little bit more lenient stream access laws.
0: A hundred percent. And the the big thing is there's still tons of private lakes. I mean, there's thousands of completely private lakes because they own so much property around it. Mm -hmm. It's not that much. I mean, I think it's a hundred feet. You have to look in the Minnesota DNR website, exactly what it is, but it's just, if, if you can access it within a few feet, that's, that's the variance and that's done for duck hunting. It's done for everything.
1: Yeah. And that that seems reasonable. I mean, yeah, if you, if you own, you know, thousands of acres and have a pond in the middle of it, then yeah, people shouldn't be walking across your land to get to it. But I mean, come on! If you've got if you've got a, a major river running through your property, um, people should be able to fish on that. You know, as long Absolutely. as they're treating your land properly. But um, that's that's just a that's a rant that I get off on every time anyone talks about their their stream access laws because it just it fires me up so much about Colorado, um, and I'm jealous of, of all you. Will guys. You come on to the-
0: Minnesota, <laughs> we'll treat you right. You might have to eat leeches, though. Apparently, some of the some people. In- Around here, do that.
1: Really? Okay. Well, oh, yeah. I, I haven't heard of that here, so maybe maybe we're uh, trading off uh, stream access laws for weird weird customs.
0: Mike Rowe, the guy from Dirty Jobs, uh-huh. came up here. He he went uh, for a leech leech baiter, right? And sure enough, they fried him up, and he ate leeches. Huh? Not not common. That's just that's just a weird redneck thing that you hear about once in a while.
1: I'll have to keep that in mind if I ever come to Minnesota.
0: Right, but to, to answer your question about muskallunge. That's generally done trolling around here. There's not okay. a lot of casting. The lures are as you know, big as Japan fish or bigger. Right. Um, most people use some type of live bait, suckers, stuff like that, and it's a it's a trolling deal. Um, they they hit exactly like a northern pike, mm-hmm. so it's just bigger, a lot bigger, and a lot more aggressive. They right. use spoons, stuff like that, and when you hit them, it's. A hundred pound test has no mercy on that. You have to have a massive steel leader just to be able to have hope of landing the fish because it'll cut right through steel. It's a, it's an insane fish and it'll take your boat for a ride. When you land one, you got to have a nice big, I, we actually recommend sea fishing poles a lot of times to, to hit these things. It's nothing like you have to have braces, like you're doing actual deep sea fishing, but it'll, it'll pull the boat a ways. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a big thing to land.
1: Have you caught quite a few?
0: I've got a, uh, a few. I don't intentionally uh, try to go after them often. Uh, you know, the lures alone are fifty bucks a piece.
1: Right, so you don't it, need losing that of too often.
0: <laughs> You'll hit them though, and there's people that do fish them. I've got, I've got a few myself, but normally I'm going after a bass or northern pike themselves. Okay, not in yeah, pan.
1: Fish. I love pan fishing. It is so fun. I mean, when you can catch, you know several dozen fish a day i don't care how small the fish is well
0: um, before we end the podcast i have to tell you my secret recipe for frying fish
1: you can go for that right now before i forget
0: all right do it now before yeah, oh, you right go for it talk about food before we talk about invasive face, face of species
1: I, i'm down to follow any any rabbit trail we we go down so go for it right now shoot excellent
0: so again my uh, minnesota redneck method there's a wonderful company called shore lunch all right if you don't have it, you can order it online, you can get it on Amazon. It is the best stuff. There's a couple different varieties. Just get the original recipe shore lunch. It's literally just a, like a flour batter with seasonings and uh, all kinds of goodies. You mix it with egg, right? You dip the fish, your fish fillet and egg. Mm. I, this is all for panfish uh, that I recommend. And you roll in the, the batter that they give you and fry them. You can deep fry them or you can thick pan fry them. Meaning you take a, uh, just a flat pan and put a, you know, a good half inch inch of, uh, liquid on the bottom. So you're still mm. essentially deep frying them and it works great. But my deal, you know, mix some Lowry seasoning salt with that, with just a splash of Mountain Dew for citrus. Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew.
1: I have not heard that before, but I'll have to give it a whirl.
0: <laughs> Yahoo. Mountain Dew. Highly recommend. That's, uh, that's always the way I do fish. At least once every summer. Just All right, have- I'll
1: have to give that a try. The one well, downside I have, at least where I live, I mean, I haven't ventured too far out. Um, but the the panfish I've caught locally have been pretty small. So I've I've actually eaten them whole. I gave you that recipe for trout when I was on your podcast. And I kind of do the panfish the same way. I just I take the whole panfish, cut the heads off, um, and just grill them up like whole body. Um, but if I, if I do get some that are big enough to fillet and bread, I'll have to give that a try.
0: Yeah, we don't have a lot of people that do that. There's people from the older generation that'll that'll do that around here. Most of the time, it's, you know, take a flat fillet, we fillet it boneless, and we just leave the skin on. We just scrape mm-hmm. skin off of the spoon.
1: Okay. Yeah, I kind of like the skin. It adds a, adds a little something to it.
0: Absolutely. Well, instead of making your uh, listeners hungry, uh, you, you invited me on number one, to uh, expose them a little bit to the aquarium world, but to talk about invasive species as well, correct?
1: Right. So if you want to start by uh, just doing a quick background about your podcast and um, your kind of aquarium hobby, then we can jump in. I'm sure that'll lead kind of into the invasive species world, but just a little background first would be great.
0: Certainly. So again, living on a lake in Minnesota, I grew up on a small uh, private lake and I, lived, I had a paddle boat from like age six, my mom says, you were a life jacket. and I just had free reign to hit like anytime I ever wanted. There was no like, mom, can I go in the boat? It was just, she, she literally has binoculars to look in the lake to see if I'm wearing a life jacket. That was the <laughs> rules. If there was no life jacket, she came out with the boat, got me, brought me back in, and uh, I was grounded from the from the boat for a week. It wasn't that's, like- That's a reasonable video rule. Game. You're grounded from the boat. They'll like take the plug out of the boat and say, well, try it now, so. <laughs> But no, so I, that's where I grew up. I, I grew up, you know, fishing uh, every day during the summer and just love aquatic life. And from a very young age, my grandmother got me into aquariums. She bred all different types of, you know, betas, otherwise known as Siamese fighting fish. And I just had a, a, a aquarium as long back as I can remember. So that experience and getting into different ventures, growing in the hobby, like selling fish online, doing wholesaling with uh, my neighbor uh, and dear friend, Jim. He's actually on the podcast with me. We decided that, you know, between us, we have, you know, probably 50, 60 years of experience and wanted to share some way the fish hobby. Because in 2001, aquarium fish became uh, really difficult to distribute uh, because of 9-11. All the flights and trying to move anything live was very low on the totem pole when everybody's worried about terrorists. So Mm -hmm. Since then, there's been a massive decline nationwide on the fish hobby. And it's not just uh, the logistics, but there's been a lot of, I hate to say it, die off of people that are experienced from the 30s to 50s in the aquarium hobby. So the businesses, everything's online. You know, Amazon has killed the main street mom and pop shops. uh, Aquarium businesses have uh, closed across the country, especially here in Minnesota, northern Minnesota. It's pretty much a metro only thing to see a a pet store, but outside of a retail chain and just a really sad deal that all this information is being lost. So we started the podcast. It's been great. We've had a lot of guests on and we really like to experience, you know, misconceptions and all this knowledge that people have, uh, you know, recessed because it's all online and everybody wants to make a business out of their aquarium.
1: So do you uh do you focus mostly on or I guess not just focus but do you have uh, saltwater aquariums or freshwater aquariums or like what's your what's your passion in that world?
0: There's generally four things in the world that um we categorize them in freshwater, brackish, which is fifty percent salt, fifty percent uh, fresh, okay. and that's kind of like a you know in Florida you have fresh and salt where well, you have fish intermingling that are in like the an brackish. estuary type, right type type estuary okay uh climate salt water and then ponds what's so the i've had between all pond of the fresh water say that again
1: what's the difference between pond and fresh water
0: so freshwater uh aquariums are generally inside they're kept in a tank ponds are outside oh okay the okay whole, the whole decor
1: that makes sense so what's what's your favorite
0: i'm not gonna lie to you i'm an aquarium guy and it's gonna shame me no one's ever asked me what's my favorite and it's bar none ponds really I- okay That's a a shocker, but I love uh, koi. Koi are are essentially interactable. You can have fish that you can feed. They're excited to see you, but you can't pet a fish. Mm. Koi, you can tell them or teach them to do tricks. You can hand feed them. They like attention. They're literally members of the family like a cat or dog. Really? There's there's, there's no fish like a a, a koi. And Koi essentially is just like a common carp. They're just decorative. They're originated in Asia, generally really focused on in Japan.
1: So do you have a koi pond? And, and if so, did you have to get all the special permitting from, from Minnesota to have those?
0: So the, here's the deal. Minnesota doesn't care about ornamental fish. They only oh, care really? about native species. So you can have build your own pond, and as long as it's not connected to a normal waterway, you can have any fish you want into it as long as it's not on their invasive species list.
1: Oh, okay. So,
0: so that... you can not have a bluegill, but you can have a koi.
1: That is so... I mean... I like, I'm obviously not an expert, so I'm not going to say what's reasonable and what's not. But that's so backwards of what I would have guessed. I would have guessed that, like, if you've got fish that they have there, then you'd be able to have it. But if you have fish that are, you know, completely exotic from another country, then that's when you'd have to get permitted. But it seems like it's backwards.
0: I think this is the perfect segue to talk about the invasive species yeah. And invasive issues. Yeah, so for sure. The thing that they're worried about, and this is done with whitetail deer as, as well in the state, is that they're worried about not necessarily the species getting out, but diseases starting. Okay. So if you have your own pond, for instance, let's make something up and you bring in your own bluegills, your own bass and your maintained pond outside of nature, because you're going to add food, you're going to add, clean it up. You're going to put chemicals in it, whatever else.
1: Right. It's pretty synthetic
0: overall. Absolutely. Could start a disease. And when that disease spreads into other lakes and then is transported with all these boats, because boats, again do not just stay at the same lake, they go to hundreds of different other lakes because everybody travels around trying different lakes. All of those diseases um, move. And one of the uh, examples is there's an invasive species, the common carp, which has been introduced. Carp have been introduced across the world. They're a big hit for European uh, fishers. If you talk to someone in England, their biggest fish most likely is going to be some sort of carp. That's why they go fishing in Asia and introduce carp into those waters. They have Asian carp. They try to go after. They're carp enthusiasts. So in the 1800s, when everything's getting colonized and established, they added the common Eur- uh, Eurasian carp.
1: So this might be a kind a Euro- of a dumb European, question.
0: European carp. I apologize.
1: Okay. It comparing it to something like the deer, like let's say chronic wasting disease. I know that you know, know. that's that's a big argument for. Um, not having things like high fence hunting, where all the deer are concentrated, or just straight up deer farming, just having deer in a in close proximity, um, because they're they're nuzzling, they're spreading the disease, and if that gets into the wild population, then those deer are just walking around giving it to everybody else. Now, if if you have your own isolated pond, what is the mechanism that gets a disease that starts in your pond out into wild fish if it's not connected? By any means to uh, like any rivers or lakes.
0: Deer, blue herons, pelicans, loons, Canadian geese, ducks, anything. It's incredible the amount of stuff, even otters, uh, fox, anything that can drag species out of it. And here's the example why I mentioned the carp. So the carp have been everywhere and any place that they've been introduced used to have greenery. Now you'll see brown water is because carp are... Diggers. They'll continually go to the bottom. They have barbels, and they dig, 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 and dig, and that's their natural uh, method. So the DNR has been trying to figure out for generations how to control these fish. Well, somebody decided to have a single goldfish. The goldfish was in someone's pond. They did not introduce the goldfish, at least this is what's acclaimed. They didn't introduce the goldfish themselves. Some predator, like a heron, like a fox, like something else, took goldfish out of the pond, ate them and they got into a local lake. That lake had carp. So the goldfish that got introduced had a type of carp specific herpes. So the herpes got to the waterway through a piece of dead fish that's uh, someone got from a goldfish and they found the goldfish. And in 2000, I believe it's 18, they the introduced goldfish, the herpes killed every single carp in the entire waterway. Really? They had hundreds and thousands of carp showing up in the waterway. So that's one species that uh, it was a good thing because carps are invasive around here and goldfish are just a decorative form of small carp. But that was a, a disease that's specific just to carp. It was a carp herpes, wiped all the carp out and left the native fish alone. Mm-hmm. But let's take another example that you'd have some other disease. It could easily wipe out the entire lake just from one fish. Sure. So okay. that's, that's their, their big concern.
1: So basically just like animals or, or, or people, I suppose, that are visiting both of these waterways. And and they talk about that, I think, less for diseases and more for actual the invasive species themselves. You know, they warn if you've got like felt sole boots on your waders that you need to you know thoroughly dry them out or disinfect them before you uh, use them between different waterways that have different sets of species because, you know, if something clings on to the – especially the felt on your boots – you can walk them into other waterways, but it's essentially the same thing. Um, you know, these diseases or species are riding on the backs of, you know, whoever's visiting the waterway, and then you know, if that just walks into a, a different lake, then suddenly what what was produced in your pond is now wherever that other the host carrier took it. It sounds like.
0: Absolutely, and I can't stress this enough. Like, if I can give one message to your listeners today, is that if you have something that you brought into a tank uh, past your live well, if you have a pond, if you have an aquarium, and you're daughter or something wants to get rid of the aquarium dad i'm done with fish you don't have anybody to give it to you know talk call a pet store call the dnr see if there's something never put them in a lake or stream because those fish are essentially in a petri dish they are built to handle different uh, environments it's not just about them procreating it's about the disease that's carried on them
1: yeah so how much and i don't want to say i don't want to um diminish what you just said but how much of a problem Is it like, and I don't mean, yes, it's a problem because it obviously is by what you just said, but how, how frequently is this happening? I guess, um, like how often are people, you know, you hear about it in Florida where there's now like boas that are, are living there because people have decided they don't want their snakes anymore. But, but how much of a problem in terms of how frequently is this happening that people are releasing their, um, aquarium fish or just fish that shouldn't be there, um, regardless of their, you know, tropical aquarium fish, how often are people releasing these into the water?
0: It's happening literally everywhere. And there's a culture that's been around, especially in the South, that they use goldfish for bait. You know, mm-hmm. just crazy amounts of invasive species. Florida specifically has a lot of invasive species because it's the capital for pet farming. All, uh, all the major fish farmed, if you have a farmed goldfish or a farm-raised guppy, it's coming from Florida. They're, they're doing less and less importing from different uh, Asian farms all the time. The majority comes from Florida, and that's been that way since the 60s. OK, so because of that, they have all the other species and Florida has the perfect climate. So anything that gets out stays there. So if you go around Florida in ditches, you can find angelfish in trees. You can find like you mentioned the boa. It's everywhere that invasive species have hit Florida so very hard because they weren't very proactive at first in their rivers. They have Plecostomus. Those are the algae eaters. You kind of see mm-hmm. at the Walmarts. They grow from like I'm a six foot one man. They grow from my shoulder to my fingertip. In burrow themselves in riverbanks, so it's it's happening there more than any other place. But it's happening across the United States. There's places in Michigan. There's places all across the Midwest that it happens to. And no one gives it a lot of attention because they uh, they don't understand the impact from it. So if a disease hits it, you don't hear a lot of news about a disease because it wipes out the the lake, and it's up to the DNR to try to fix the repercussions. They either have to you know chemical the whole lake to bleach it out before they can put fish back into it, or it's just completely ignored because it wasn't a real big fishing spot.
1: Well, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the disease thing because that that what you just said kind of um makes me think about how I perceived it in that, you know, I've I've always thought of Florida as being like the invasive species capital. Like that's where people are releasing 100%. their pets. And they're able to live there because it's so warm. And so in my mind, I'm like, well, in somewhere like Minnesota or Wisconsin or Montana, it's so cold that yeah, if someone throws a you know, tropical fish in the water, like poor fish, it's not going to live, but it's also not going to proliferate and become a problem. But what you mentioned is the disease, which is not something I had thought of before, where I'm just like, you know what, that goldfish is not going to make it, you know, poor guy, but you know, it's not going to, it's not going to take anything over. But if it's got a disease attached to it, then that's a whole different story.
0: And that's not necessarily true either. So here's a couple of examples of where it beats, not just diseases, but let's just talk about the species. Okay. I'm in Minnesota. Everything should freeze. There's very few fish that will live in a climate all year round underneath the ice here. Mm-hmm. So if I get an angelfish, it should die, right? Well, there's a couple of examples. Example one, Montana shares a similar climate to Minnesota. They've released cichlids and guppies and other uh, aquarium fish. One guy just took his aquarium and dumped it in a small waterway. And what he didn't realize, it was connected to a uh, um, fountain, geyser, spring, uh, heat source from the earth. Mm-hmm. And those fish in the winter migrate to where the springs are and live all winter long. And in the summer, when everything unfreezes and thaws, spread across. So no now <laughs> we have tropical species that have found a way to survive. Now, in Minnesota, we don't have a lot of those you know, geysers, <laughs> a lot of heat sources through the ground. But they're still finding ways. There's a example that actually was just discovered this last year. It's uh, the red swamp crayfish. It's a very tropical fish or a tropical creature. Excuse me. It is a crayfish. And I was shocked to, to hear that this could possibly even survive in Minnesota. Apparently there's a waterway in Minnesota where again, somebody had it in their aquarium. They dumped it off and figured it could live the summer and then die peacefully freezing to death. Well, they lived. Apparently they I don't like using the word evolved, but adapted to their uh, s- surroundings. Mm-hmm. And now we have red swamp crayfish, a normally uh, a tropical variety, living year round. They started in 2016, and they're still there year after year, and really growing. And they have adapted to the cold climate. We're seeing fish do this, and it, it's it's still a scare but beyond just the disease conversation.
1: Wow, that that is that is surprising to me because. Yeah, it does make sense that if you do have like a hot spring or something that, you know, things could live around there. But it's just it's never occurred to me because I've I've been in the same boat that you described where it's like, well, everything freezes. You know, it's not great for the individual you put in there, but it'll take like basically the environment will take care of this for us. Um, But now I'm like thinking of all the places that, you know what, like, yeah, Colorado gets cold, but there's places in Colorado. We have warm years where things could proliferate over the winter or something like that.
0: It's just amazing to think the amount of lack of common sense when people do this. I've even seen last winter, I got a call from some friends that found caiman in prior Lake, Minnesota this last fall. Really? That's by a big casino down uh, south close, uh, close to the metro. And they literally found caiman, black caiman, small black caiman. So someone had a in- pet caiman? Yep. And they released it in the lake.
1: And for, for people who don't know, a caiman is kind of like a like an alligator type. It's, it's probably the same family. Angrier, or something.
0: Much angrier than an alligator. <laughs> it's like a small crocodile <laughs> with an attitude.
1: Not, I mean, not the not that you want any invasive species in your area, but definitely not of all the invasive species, not the one you want in your in your local waters. No
0: way. That's that's uh, that's too way too risky. But yeah, it's. It's really sad. There, there's another fish that's actually, it's called a weather loach or a dojo loach. Um, I have a couple in my tank because I purchased them after Minnesota or before Minnesota banned them. And these are guys are old when they're gone. I'm never purchasing them again. But these guys are from the hill streams in mountain ranges in China. And they're a delicacy because they proliferate so easy. They're so super hardy. They actually eat them and they look like yellow, small eels. There's uh, ones that are brown. And the brown ones gotten on in a lake in Michigan and have completely overtaken it. So it's not that the species are there killing the other things; they're they're competing now for resources with a fish that are way better adapted that aren't from the local area. Okay. This, this species has grown twice the size that it normally does in captivity, and has overtaken all panfish, everything in the lake, and has has flooded and destroyed the eco- uh, ecosystem.
1: Huh? It's. <laughs> It, are people just really, I mean, what's what's the motivation for so many people dumping their aquariums in local waterways? Is that just, is it harder to get rid of them at like a pet store? Like, is it just laziness? What's, what's the driving force here?
0: Well, I think of it like your, your cat or dog. If you want to get rid of your cat or dog, you hear people that just drop a kitten off in the middle of Main Street. They want, they don't want to kill it, but they don't want to uh, be responsible for it. Mm-hmm. so something they had, they don't feel like they want to call someone because they want to get rid of it. Cause they feel abandonment issues and they see water. They live in water. That seems like a really good home for them. And they just don't put a lot of thought of what it can do to that waterway. It's just lack of common sense. They're not taking the minute to think about it and they're getting rid of the pet that they didn't want. And I have yet to see a pet store besides like a Petco or a PetSmart that won't even Petco takes them in that won't take a fish in no matter what it is. And if it's too big, There are uh, people like the Ohio Fish Rescue that take in massive species. They take an alligator gar. They take an arapaima. Those things are 14 feet. People own these things? Absolutely. Really? Those aren't the invasive species, but that's just an idea of someone that grew too big and has abandonment. There are places for it to go is the point.
1: I had no idea that people own things like alligator gar or arapaima.
0: Yeah, and if you want to see this, like this is like river monsters on Discovery Channel type stuff. You can go and check out his YouTube channel, Ohio Fish Rescue, and it'll blow your mind. He converted an indoor swimming pool. He has almost, uh, I believe, now it's getting closer to a hundred thousand gallons in his home.
1: Okay, so my th- my thought on this is that if you go to the trouble to get something like an alligator gar or an arapaima, I I wouldn't expect that you're the type of person to then be like, oh no, I gotta abandon this, like. That that strikes me as someone who really wanted a fish tank. They'd never had one before. They get one. They realize it's too much work, and they dump their their exactly. you know aquarium full of neons into the into the river. But like, if you got to the point where you can house an arapaima, like I would have expected that by that point, you're like well versed in the whole aquarium world because obviously you need like you can't just put that in a a tiny little tank in your room.
0: Oh, uh, it comes down to education. People will go through a fish store. And Aeropima is a bad example. Aropaima is very rare and hard to find. But let's take something that's normal, like an arowana, um, not the illegal kind either, or a massive catfish. Okay. When you see them in the pet store, they're nice and small. They got great color. They look cool. Mom, I want it. And the the pet store owners, he has to make a living. It's not his fault that someone didn't do the, the homework, but an ethical pet store will tell you, no, this grows eight feet i mean do you have a you know thousand gallon aquarium to go in well no i'm going to reject the sale well when you put a pet store owner up to uh you know a couple hundred dollar sale of a fish he's just, he will take the money ethical ones will educate you and the biggest pet that's abused that uh literally most of the pet owners and uh pet owners uh broadcasters such as myself youtubers try to uh propagate to not get is what's called a paku. a paku is Easily described as a vegetarian piranha. They look like a red belly piranha and they are extremely cheap. It's two to three dollars at a pet store.
1: Are those the ones that have like human teeth?
0: Yes. Mom, I want a piranha. Oh, sorry, don't get a piranha. They might bite you. Well, we have this alternative. It's a paku and it has human teeth. Oh, great. Let's get it. Well, they don't realize that that will never stop growing. The paku grow. You can go on the Ohio fish rescue. They have one of the record ones we're talking many feet long really? These on a disc and they look bigger than uh, the f- massive garbage can lids. These things grow absolutely huge.
1: Do they not grow that big in the? Because I feel like I've seen, I think I've seen that on like uh, river monsters or something. And I feel like the ones he was catching were normal piranha size. Like, do these grow garbage can lid size in the wild? And I just have not seen that on a. In the TV wild, they
0: don't grow quite uh, quite that big because, again, they're generally weaned out by massive predatory fish. Oh,
1: okay, okay. They, they that makes
0: stay sense. roughly as a large crappie uh, to the length of a northern pike. But so when they
1: they're keep... not being preyed upon and they're getting bottomless food, they'll just yeah. keep on going. Oh, okay. I think someone actually caught a paku in one of one of the lakes that's within, I want to say, 10 miles of me. Uh, I saw an article that someone caught, like, an Amazonian fish. And I'm pretty sure sh- – I'm, like, 99% sure it was a paku a couple of years ago just, like, down the road from me.
0: So uh, – a uh- across the nation you'll hear different stories and you can look a lot of these up it is one of the most dumped individual fish that there is because they get too big no one will take them even pet stores because they're just a massive wall of fish Mm -hmm. there's no space and it costs too much money to take care of so those dump them so we've i have long lists of people finding them in the wild there's even a situation where someone found it in the mississippi river in minnesota a record size pocket
1: now, are there any, so uh, for example, I'm just going to use Colorado because obviously that's what I'm familiar with, but there are places in Colorado that Northern Pike are, you know, considered to be invasive and they'll give you like a bounty on them. Like if you, if you catch Northern Pike out of whatever body of water, they'll give you 20 bucks a fish to kill them. Uh, is there any sort of like, but that's, that's just Colorado. Is there any sort of like overarching, um, law or recommendation or something for these fish that maybe across the nation, but you know, that says if you catch this, you need to keep it and you can't, you're not allowed to return it back to the waterway. Or is that a state by state thing? It's a state
0: by state thing, county by county thing, and sometimes body of water by body of water thing. Okay. So I'll give you two of the worst examples. Um, One, in Brownsville County, Florida, there is the, probably the most invasive uh, fish that I've ever heard of. It's called a snakehead. There are three varieties of snakehead in the world and they happen to have one of the most uh not the biggest but certainly the most vivacious variety there i I think it's the red spotted i have to look it up but these snakehead come from uh, i believe it's taiwan they have a very different ecology over there and different amount of predators the snakehead is extremely hardy you can live in almost any condition it is called the snakehead because it has a actually a arrow snake-like head that can actually wriggle on land and cross from body of water to body of water walking on land essentially and these things have the worst aggression of almost any fish in nature so if you're gonna try to fish for these things or fish for anything they have a vivacious appetite they're extremely territorial and if they have babies anything that swims by will be bitten and hit including wild animals or your legs so these fish have been introduced by an Asian market. They sell snakehead because snakehead are used for Asian soups and believe they have a lot of medicinal benefits. So they wanted to not pay so much for importing. So they released it into Florida's waters. And it's one of the worst invasive species that have blown apart waterways in Florida. And they're trying to find any ways, bleaching out lakes, anything they can do to stop the spread of this horrible invasive species. These things grow massive. And just to give you an example, when you take a frog or some topwater lure, the fish don't hit it because they're hungry. The fish do it because they're protecting their territory and are angry at your lure. It's one of the most unique fishing experiences of your life. I highly recommend going. There's thousands of YouTube videos, but Florida specifically, like you asked, they have a law where if you catch one, it's illegal to put it back in the water. You have to kill it or get rid of it.
1: Okay, and it, I've and I've heard that snakeheads are particularly like hard to kill. Like there have been people who've pulled them out and left them on land, thinking like, oh, just like all the other fish I've caught today, it'll just suffocate. Um, and side note, like I I support people just killing their fish when they catch them instead of just leaving them to to suffocate. Um, if they're gonna catch them and eat them, but you can't just do that with a snakehead because it can just live out there and just basically live on land for, I, I don't want to say indefinitely because it obviously it will die eventually. Clock. But It
0: does have a clock. They, they do yeah. have to get back in. They'll dry out. Um, they don't breathe oxygen, but it, they do last a long, long time on, on land. Right. It's uh, not going to be like the bluegills you throw. They've tried to do anything they, they can with them and you have, to, you have to kill the creature. And they're not like bad tasting, but. Um, another example is the Asian carp that you hear, and this is the, I think, the most worrying of any in space species that we have in the nation currently, that I can think of. The Asian carp, again, a big carp, works like the Louisiana paddlefish. Are you familiar with those?
1: Uh, is that different from the, like, uh, where I grew up there were paddlefish, but I only overheard them called paddlefish, just like the blackish, grayish yep. fish with the big, the big, um, nose. <laughs>
0: So paddlefish are very beautiful and they're being endangered by this other species and how they feed they are filter feeders, kind of like, uh, like you expect whales to be, they open their mouth Mm. and go in. So they're filter feeders getting all the remnants from the water and they're big fish. They have these enormous paddles that they are supposed to be spread across the Midwest. There's some in Minnesota, Iowa, but they're in dire risk because they're following river waterways. So down south, someone introduced another Asian market, introduced the Asian carp. It does the same thing, but on steroids. They grow bigger. They are um, mass populators. Their breeding cycles are insane. And again, they came from a different area with different different predators, different cycle, and they're exploding. They're taking over lakes and completely wiping any beneficial nutrients out of the water because they're filter feeding. Mm -hmm. And these things are coming up in the hundreds of thousands. They're going out and it's getting so invasive in southern states that they actually have um, competitions to go out and electrocute them, slap the water, anything to, to get these. Because the Asian carp has a knack to whenever they're scared or anything, instead of like a fainting sheep, they shoot out of the water like a rocket. Oh, so yeah, I've you're seen driving, those. <laughs> you're driving with a boat. You can have thousands of these, hundreds of these fly out at you. People have been... Uh, killed by these actually in a boat but knocked out and anything else so they try to take um in big festivals trying to wean down the numbers and go out with you know nets uh dress up in football gear anything that they can find they electrocute them out of rivers anything because they're completely devastating all the native species and they're following up the mississippi river
1: so are they just out competing the paddlefish they're not like directly preying on the paddlefish they're just out competing it
0: they're out competing everything because there's so much. think of it like the tree right the uh ant feeds the gecko the gecko feeds the bird uh the bird feeds the uh human you know that that whole tree of life thing so in the water the base thing is the micronutrients in the water that feeds the bugs which feed the bluegills which feed the bass which feed the musky you know that, that whole mm. t- tree of life so because they're completely devastating the waterways of all nutrients it's decimating any population of any other fish across the river and the paddlefish is most affected because they're slow breeders and they literally are the first fish to feed off of the direct nutrients
1: so they're basically like getting at the ground level and stopping the all. okay so i think that's an important uh, in, uh, sorry important point to make that the because we've already talked about the diseases. And something like the snakehead, which is just super aggressive. And then something like the Asian carp, which are just basically out competing everything. That invasive species aren't just something that, you know, it, it's not just cut and dry that they eat other fish or something like that. Like, there's so many different mechanisms of how they can be a detriment to whatever body of water they're in. It's, it's not just straight up, if the fish has a lot of teeth and is big, it'll be bad. But if it's not, then it's fine. Um, because there's so many different ways for these. ...species to affect the other native species that are in the water?
0: You don't know. Whenever a fish is introduced, that's never been there. You don't know what now it's going to compete with its food. The dojo loach, the weather loach I mentioned before, ate all of the you know small bugs and creatures, anything it could find in the water, compete out the panfish. This is getting the micronutrients to feed everything else in the water, and the whole tree is affected. Whereas, um, I mentioned before in my podcast that over the last decade... Freshwater jellyfish have been showing up in all these lakes and streams across the entire United States. They're not taking the nutrients out of the water. They're not showing up as, an, as a real threat to other fish. In fact, we probably see a couple of fish even try to nip at them. They're not invasive. They're a foreign species that aren't invasive. That almost never happens. That is the probably one fluke I can ever find of any fish being introduced into a waterway that doesn't affect another species
1: that's so crazy that you bring that up right now because my actual my next question was going to be can you where do you draw the line between invasive and non-native
0: yeah it, it comes to a ton of research probably multiple decades of uh seeing it happen there's almost never a case where something's introduced that, that hasn't been there before or doesn't affect the other species in a negative way mm-hmm. the only thing I can ever think of is maybe some plants and that's even rare and the freshwater jellyfish which it's not even on most states of DNR lists that they even exist because they're just not a threat. They don't sting people. They're not in effective waterways in any way that they can find. But almost always there's it's always labeled as an invasive species.
1: So would something like the common carp be considered invasive? Because like yes. it you know, it, it does it can multiply pretty quickly, but like what you know, people aren't trying to exterminate it, I guess, is the is oh. the difference
0: i'll give an example so when the the carp were introduced in the 1800s right we had pers- a lot of pristine waterways with a lot of vegetation the vegetation supported different creatures above and below the surface carp were introduced and they were introduced only in some waterways so it's not that they were affected everywhere but the waterways that they were affected ripped out tons of uh, plant life and because of that completely changed the ecology of the waterway you know pushing out trout pushing out certain uh, other species there used to be a species in minnesota the last confirmed sighting was 1984 of a blue walleye blue walleye because of other competing species carp other things have been extinct now and uh, unless someone has some rare reporting of potentially finding one they're they're gone
1: so like i guess i guess my question here is like it's kind of the same thing as like pheasants so pheasants aren't native to the U.S., but we've decided that we like hunting them, so now there's things like Pheasants Forever, where people, you know, want to keep them around because they want to hunt them, Um, and now, like, carp fishing is becoming a popular activity, so... You know, is there just kind of like a balancing act between, yes, this is an invasive species, it, the population has grown more than it should have, but also there's now a group of people that probably would fight for having carp around because they value having it, um, and it's not having as detrimental as an effect as something like the snakehead, um, because the carp can at least coexist with something like bass without, you know, completely destroying the population.
0: That's on a, a case by case scenario. I'm pretty sure every invasive species that's that's really proliferated to those points have different uh, um, ways that are, humans are interacting, having at least a positive reaction. Like snakehead fishing attracts thousands of people now to Florida because they don't believe that these fish that jump out of the water at your lure exist. They have you know these uh, tournaments to try to see who can catch as many Asian carp and win a, a grand trophy. They don't mm-hmm. like the carp being there, but they make the best of it. Mm-hmm. Carp fishing is again a real reaction because we have the species. They're not going away and there's no limits on them. They're not a controlled species. They smoke them. They'll do what they can with them. And what's really common in Minnesota is they do. um, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. bow fishing is the best way. to.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yep.
0: They have a flat bottom boat. They put halogen lamps across the entire uh, front bay and sides of the boat. And they drive this around at night and wait for bright yellow carp to swim by and they shoot a bow to try to catch these fish i, I know there's other states south, uh, in the south that do it it's becoming more and more popular up here and if there is some way that they could you know eradicate a species it really comes down to a lot of the lake societies if there's people living on a lake generally you can go a coalition and work with the dnr to talk about what happens to your lake in a voting manner
1: mm-hmm. so it, it basically comes down to are people going to want it there or not and you know at the end of the day we can't necessarily control whether something's eliminated i think at that point grass or uh, sorry not grass asian carp would have been eliminated a long time ago if we had the ability to just wave a wand and get rid of it Um, but because it's not that simple you know there's there's certain species that you can cohabitate with for a little bit longer without much of a problem and since something like common carp is not as detrimental as some of these other species you know, people are kind of just making the best of it for the time being because, like, I mean, what are you going to do? They're here.
0: And with zoologists and other uh, scientists, DNR uh, regulations, there have been cases where there's been a single body of water. That have been completely eradicated everything living in it to stop some horrible species or some horrible disease from spreading to other waterways. That ha- that's happened quite a few times across the United States. Same with the chronic wasting disease you were mentioning earlier. In Europe, I believe, they made a decision, I believe it was in the Scandinavian countries, to wipe out the entire existence of caribou. And then bring in some after the chronic wasting disease was done to make sure that chronic wasting disease was never there again. And that's very successful but they had, you know, time research behind it to see what's the impact of us deleting the body of water or deleting that species from the area and reintroducing it. Mm -hmm. There's impact and pros and cons, but it's not out of the question if they, they, they'll find a wand, but for the entire Mississippi river to be done for Asian carp, it's pretty, pretty impossible.
1: Right. And you're also fighting with the public who, you know, if you just said that you're going to wipe out every fish in whatever body of water, you know, people are going to be angry regardless of whether it's in their best interest overall. You know, it's hard to convince a giant group of people anything like that.
0: If I told someone that I'm starting a new podcast, there's going to be someone that doesn't like it, but (laughs) I just hope that uh, the collective at least make their opinions known and everybody's doing their best not to dump their aquariums in the water.
1: Yeah, so that kind of leads me to my last point is, like, what apart from just don't dump your aquariums, like what is the solution to this? I'm not asking you to, you know, again, wave your magic wand and fix all this, but like, what are there, are there any like obvious steps to at least help the problem? Like I mentioned earlier, if you, if you've got waders with felt sole boots, you need to dry those out or disinfect them before you, you know, carry um, organisms from one body of water to an, an unconnected body of water elsewhere. But like, are there any other steps that people can take?
0: The best things that you can do, besides don't dump your aquarium in the water, <laughs> is essentially for boaters. Boaters uh, do the the biggest hitchhiking, and it's not necessarily a fish species; it's plants or or uh, mollusks. Okay. We have a big crisis across Minnesota for um, Eurasian milfoil. Milfoil can completely choke out water from the top to bottom, no matter how real deep it is, and they have to use churning machines to rip out milfoil. To essentially just even open up the water at all it's a plant that grows every inch in the water they have um, zebra mussels zebra mussels again take beneficial bacteria out of the water and frankly when you step on them cut your feet open so those are the most prolific species that a lot of waterways are are concerned about and always whenever you take your your boat in and out of water clean your boat drain your water and if you can let it dry five days That will take care of most of the invasive species a bit always inspect and clean your boat
1: yeah i know a lot of waterways also have like a boat inspection i'm not sure what all they're looking for but i assume some of it has to do with asking you about you know where you've been using your boat recently and and what steps you've taken in between then and now um before you oh yeah
0: fourth of july weekend weekend on some of the most popular lakes in minnesota we have DNR that go to the boat entrances and before you launch, launch your boat they'll ask you where you've been you know did you clean your boat out they'll check your uh the back of the ballast of the boat to make sure you drained it before going into the new waterway mm-hmm. it, they'll they'll uh they'll do it uh, as much as they can but you know with 18,000 lakes in Minnesota it's impossible but they you just got to remember to be ethical and do what you can
1: right and don't and don't dump your aquarium in the water
0: don't don't dump your aquarium <laughs> in the water if you have a fish that you need to get rid of and you don't find a home, talk to your pet store. If they can't take it, I got a man named Big Rich that will easily take whatever <laughs> big fish you got. Uh, he's a he, he's a friend of mine from the Ohio Fish Rescue. Certainly, uh, contact me. Contact him. There are people. Don't put it in your river.
1: I think uh, I saw recently a, a Placostomus was found in the Animas River here, um, and whoever pulled it out, it was like I think it was dead on the side of the river bank, but. Um, that was a fish I had in aquarium when I was a kid. And I remember I saw the picture of it, even though it was like half decomposed, I I recognized it as something that shouldn't be here. Um, so it's, it's definitely not, I I know it's easy to think this is a Florida problem. Um, but like I said, someone caught a paku a couple of miles from my house. The placostomus was found, I want to say a couple of weeks ago, uh, in the animus. So this isn't just a Florida thing. This is, you know, all over the country. And like you said, it's, it's more of a problem than I thought. Like, I, I, you taught me a lot here today about, like, the diseases and everything. Because in my mind, it, it's kind of like the placostomus that was washed up on the side of the river. I'm like, well, you know, it's sad, but that fish died. But who knows if it if it was carrying something or something like that. It's it just something that I hadn't thought about before.
0: Absolutely. It's uh, our responsibility to do what we can. and And it's amazing how many people just really don't care or don't just think before they do it.
1: Right. Well, uh, do you just want to share where people can find you if they want to reach out or subscribe to your podcast or, you know, where's the best place for people to reach out?
0: Absolutely. So aquariumguyspodcast.com is where our website is. You can find us on any of the major stores and minor stores. I've yet to find a store we're not on. We try to put out a podcast each week. And again, we're trying to do evergreen episodes about the aquarium hobby whether it's salt water we just had the uh the pond guy on but we also do what we call the out of the tank series and the out of the tank series really goes into what i believe the aquarium hobby should know about fishing because our pets come from the nat- uh, natural environment if you love fish in your tank you're going to love fish more on your hook so I've been going through showing them DNR specialists, the baiting industry. We just had you on for fly fishing, and it's been a great series. Certainly come uh, give us a try, subscribe. And if you, again, shout out to the Highland Fish Rescue if you want to donate a fish to uh, that you need to get rid of. We'll, we'll make sure it finds a home.
1: Awesome. Well, I hope everyone comes and uh, listens to a couple of your episodes, regardless of whether they uh, they like aquarium fish or just fishing. But um, really appreciate you coming on today. I had a lot of fun and learned quite a bit
0: was my pleasure
1: all right and that'll do it as always if you liked what you heard i'd love for you to go over to apple podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts and subscribe to the show there you can also find my episodes on fish in addition to articles about fly fishing every two weeks you can also find me on instagram at fish untamed or on go wild under my name katie burger and i will be back here in two weeks so until then bye everyone